It's Monday, November the 15th, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, COP26's sour denouement and Japan's startling deceleration. First, the world in brief. After COP26, the UN Climate Summit came to an end, Alok Sharma, its president, called on China and India to explain their decision to swap out a commitment to, quote, phase out coal power and fossil fuel subsidies for a weaker promise merely to, quote, phase down. All 197 parties to the conference have pledged themselves to a, quote, Glasgow Climate Pact, which still requires them to start strengthening their emissions reduction targets for 2030 by next year. But delegates for the EU and many poorer countries expressed disappointment at the loss of the stronger commitment. Japan's GDP shrunk by an annualised 3% in the third quarter, as snarled-up global supply chains and COVID-19 restrictions battered the world's third-largest economy. The figure was far worse than analysts had expected, and followed a 1.5% gain during the previous quarter. Car exports were hit particularly hard. Japan's economy should claw back some ground this quarter, as pandemic restrictions are eased. Janet Yellen said that blame for America's soaring inflation should be placed on the pandemic, and that tackling COVID-19 would therefore restrain prices, which have reached their highest rate of increase in three decades. The Treasury Secretary argued that, if the pandemic were brought to heel, prices could return to normal levels, quote, sometime in the second half of next year. Exit polls from Bulgaria's third parliamentary election this year suggest a close result. GERB, the party of Boyko Borisov, a former prime minister, seemed to be trailing We Continue the Change, a new party christened as the anti-GERB. The presidential election, held simultaneously, put a harsh critic of Mr Borisov in poll position for a runoff. Police in Liverpool arrested three people, following an apparent terrorist attack outside a women's hospital. A taxi exploded on Sunday, killing its passenger and wounding two other people. The attack may have been timed to coincide with the annual two-minute silence Britons observed to remember their war dead. Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, son of Libya's former dictator Muammar Gaddafi, registered to stand in the country's first direct presidential election in December. After a UN-backed uprising in 2011 toppled his father, the younger Gaddafi was held captive for years by a militia. He appears to now live in a state of semi-liberty, but remains wanted by the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity. The FBI claimed that hackers, despite having broken into one of the American Domestic Security Agency's external servers and broadcast emails warning of a possible cyber attack, were not able to, quote, access or compromise any of its data. Spam House Project, the cybersecurity group that first flagged the incident, said that emails had reached at least 100,000 mailboxes, but that no malware was attached. And figure of the day, 10%. The percentage of people in sub-Saharan Africa who have received a single dose of COVID-19 by November 12th. And now, here's today's agenda. 
the Zoom where it happens, the Biden-Xi summit. President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, his Chinese counterpart, will hold their first meeting since Mr Biden came to power on Monday via video. Relations between America and China reached their lowest point in decades during the early days of Mr Biden's first year in office. The two countries traded sanctions blows. Envoys clashed without any hint of cooperation on critical challenges such as nuclear security. Yet there have been a couple of positive signs of late, including at the UN summit in Glasgow, a joint declaration on climate change. White House officials have dampened expectations of major announcements from the virtual summit. Mr Biden hopes primarily to stress the need to keep points of disagreement from spiralling out of control into open conflict. He had wanted to convey that message in person, but Mr Xi has not left China since the beginning of the pandemic. At least a Zoom is better than a phone call. Down with the dictatorship. Cuban protests. Wear a white shirt, no loose backpacks or bags, link arms to create a human chain and record as much as you can. This is some of the advice Cuban activists have been sharing before Monday's island-wide march to promote freedom and civic change. It has been organised by Archipelago, a pro-democracy group formed online within weeks of demonstrations that took place on July 11th. On that day, thousands of Cubans took to the streets to decry their repressive regime in one of the largest protests seen on the island since 1959. Hundreds were detained and many are imprisoned or missing. Miguel Diaz-Canal, Cuba's president, decried the march as, quote, part of an imperialist strategy to try to destroy the revolution. The regime has warned people to stay home. Activists' internet connections have been cut and arbitrary detentions have begun. The armed forces has even been mobilised. Clearly the regime fears the possibility that Cubans no longer fear it. No lives left. Fortnite leaves China. Gamers in China are mourning the end of an era. Epic Games, the developer of Fortnite, said it would shut down the Chinese version of its wildly popular multiplayer shooter on November 15th. New rules that limit the amount of time miners may spend playing games have hit the industry hard. Growth for online gaming revenues is expected to slow amid these policy changes, according to S&P Global, a rating agency. That is bad news for Tencent, the Chinese social media and gaming giant that owns a 40% stake in Epic. Neither Tencent nor Epic elaborated on why the game was shutting down. But tech companies are finding China an increasingly difficult environment in which to operate. LinkedIn, a professional networking site, and Yahoo, an American web services group, have both pulled out of the country in the past month. Increased online censorship and new data regulations are thought to have contributed to the sudden departures. Tough talk. Trouble brewing in Bosnia. 
Bosnia and Herzegovina will be discussed when EU foreign and defence ministers meet on Monday. Tough decisions are needed, but probably won't be made. Milorad Dodik, the Bosnian Serb leader, wants to withdraw Republika Srpska, the Serb part of the country, from involvement in most state structures, including the army. That is secession in all but name. If he does, the 600 EU troops stationed in the country won't be able to contain any clashes that might erupt. Unlike in 1992, when a bloody three-year war between Bosnia's ethnic groups broke out, Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, are as prepared for conflict as Serbs and Croats. The country's various police forces could swiftly become military ones. The EU could send a strong message to Mr Dodik by bringing in reinforcements and by putting nearby NATO and American troops on alert. It would also warn Russia, which backs him, that Western talk of preserving peace in the Balkans is not idle. Reloaded The 1619 Project In 2019, on the 400th anniversary of the first African slave's arrival in America, the New York Times magazine published The 1619 Project. The award-winning take on the country's history argued that race and the legacy of slavery are so central to American history and culture that 1619 should be considered the country's true founding date. On Tuesday, the magazine will publish a book-length expanded version, The 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. Some historians criticised the earlier endeavour for having sacrificed accuracy for political expediency. The expanded version gives greater context to its central thesis. Whether it has successfully addressed the critics' objections does matter. The original text became a call to arms for those on both sides of America's history wars, inspiring approbation and rage in equal measures. Partisans on both sides will be keen to see the redraft. Finally, here's the quote of the day from J.G. Ballard, who was born on this day in 1930. The uneasy marriage of reason and nightmare which has dominated the 20th century has given birth to an increasingly surreal world. That's it from The Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist on your podcast app, or by asking your smart speaker to play the latest Economist podcast. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening.